Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Democrats on Capitol Hill pushed to close out a big package this week, expanding the government's role in multiple sectors, including health care and energy. A law firm sues the Biden administration. They say the Education Department is illegally blocking charter schools from funding. Another bus full of illegal immigrants arrives in New York City. The mayor criticizes Texas and asks the federal government for help. We have a call set up uh, with the White House. Uh, they want to help. They may the Army plans to discharge tens of thousands of troops for not being vaccinated against COVID-19. Former President Donald Trump shares how he would handle the situation. A temporary ceasefire to the conflict in the Gaza Strip. What Israel and the designated terrorist group Islamic Jihad have to say about the conflict. Another ban on Twitter, the tweet that got a critic of so-called woke education permanently punished. What James Lindsay says about free speech and about the future of the social media platform. And the PGA Tour files a motion to keep three live golfers out of the playoffs. The PGA commissioner says the golfers knew there were consequences. Australian singer and actress Olivia Newton-John passed away this morning at the age of 73. According to her family, she died peacefully at her ranch in Southern California, surrounded by family and friends. Newton-John is a four-time Grammy winner, with top hits including Physical and You're the One That I Want. She also starred in the 1978 movie Grease. Newton-John announced in 2017 that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And also today, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden visited storm-ravaged parts of eastern Kentucky. The president joined Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear. We're not leaving. As long as it takes, we're going to be here. And uh, we're, we are committed, you know, uh, and, you know this absolute 100 uh, percent coverage of costs for the next uh, you know, few months. It matters. Uh, the, what people don't realize, all those piles of debris and everything else, it takes us a lot of time, a lot of money to get that out of the way. The Bidens met with families and viewed the damage from the worst flood in Kentucky's history. At least 37 people have died since last month's deluge, which dropped 8 to 10 and a half inches of rain in only 48 hours. Homes have gone underwater and businesses were forced to close. This is Biden's second visit to the state after taking office. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said FEMA has provided more than $3 million in relief funds and hundreds of rescue personnel have been deployed to help. And back on the Hill, Democrats are nearing a big win with their legislative agenda as a budget bill packed with their party priorities on health care and climate is inching closer to the White House. The big budget bill passed narrowly in the Senate over the weekend and is now headed to the House where it's all but certain to pass. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more details. Democrats' budget bill called the Inflation Reduction Act passed on Sunday with all Democrats voting yes and all Republicans voting no. The whole range of things that are really game-changing for ordinary folks. Vice President Kamala Harris made it to Capitol Hill to break the tie. But Democrats say they didn't get everything they wanted, and that's especially so for Socialist Democrat Bernie Sanders, who wanted the bill to be much bigger. My amendment is simple. It says that Medicare should not pay any more than the VA for prescription drugs. If we do that, we will cut the cost of Medicare prescription drugs in half. And Sanders voted to pass the bill anyway. A $35 cap on insulin will apply to Medicare recipients. In addition to the bill would have expanded this cap on insulin into the private sector, but Republicans successfully cut it. And most of the bill is climate focused with a number of tax credits to incentivize Americans and businesses to transition to renewable energy. The bill sends mixed messages to the fossil fuel industry. The industry will be hit with higher fees and royalty rates, an increase from 12.5% to 16.7%. And they will be taxed for methane produced, $900 per ton in 2024, reaching $1,500 per ton by by 2026. This, among other fees, some say will discourage oil and gas producers. 
But still, the bill expands lease sales for fossil fuel drilling. The House's Progressive Caucus has endorsed the bill, writing in a statement, Let us be clear, we do not support the bill's new provisions that expand fossil fuel leasing. However, independent analyses shows that their limited impact will be far outweighed by the carbon emissions cuts this legislation accomplishes. And in addition to the Progressive Caucus, we're also seeing a growing number of moderate Democrats come out in support for this bill. Just today, a group called the Blue Dog Coalition, their self-described fiscally responsible Democrats in the House, came out with an endorsement for this Inflation Reduction Act. So with this oncoming widespread support among the Democratic Caucus in the House, we can expect to see it move quickly through the House later this week. Leadership has called back members on Friday to take a vote on this bill, so we can expect to see it pass through the House easily and off to the White House for the president's signature, I would expect, by the end of the month. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And in education news, a legal firm is suing the Biden administration over charter school funding. They say the Department of Education, or the DOE, is limiting charter schools and hurting students' education choices. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In 2015, Congress passed the Charter School Accountability Act. It set aside hundreds of millions of dollars to award grants for the startup of qualified charter schools with a goal toward expansion. But Pacific Legal Foundation attorney Caleb Kruckenberg says the Biden administration has made its own rules. This Department of Education at the president's direction has set up several new requirements for access to those funds that really make it impossible for the most successful schools to access them. Can you explain what the new requirements are and what the impact of them are? Notably, the new requirements say things like the traditional public school has to be over-enrolled. Another requirement is that the traditional public schools are supposed to cooperate with the charter schools. But if you know anything about successful charter schools, you know that they're an alternative to schools uh, that aren't necessarily overcrowded. They're an alternative to schools that aren't doing their job. And a lot of times the public schools resent the competition. Congresswoman Virginia Fox told the DOE in a letter the rules were significantly concerning. Kruckenberg says the DOE is hostile toward the whole idea of charter schools. The Pacific Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit. Well, our primary contention with this lawsuit is that the Department of Education has no business issuing new rules or requirements for what schools can qualify. And so we're hoping that the court will step in and stop this and say that to the department, you cannot interfere with what Congress set down. We reached out to the Department of Education, but didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Looking now at immigration. Another bus of illegal immigrants arrived in the Big Apple on Sunday, and the mayor is asking the federal government for help. Here are those details. On Monday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams criticized Texas Governor Greg Abbott for what he calls the mean and cruel treatment of illegal immigrants. That's after the second bus with immigrants from Texas arrived in Manhattan. Adams claims that some on the buses didn't know where they were going. There were some who wanted to go to other uh, cities where they have families, and they just packed them on a bus without any direction. And we learned that many people had to be reticketed. Governor Abbott previously denied those claims. The first bus from Texas arrived in the Big Apple on Friday. In response, Abbott issued a statement saying that New York City is the perfect place for illegal immigrants because of the abundance of social services. He said, as one of the few cities in America with right to housing laws, New York City is required to provide emergency shelter for every unhoused person. On Monday, Adams said the city needs more resources to live up to that mandate. We have a call set up uh, with the White House. Uh, they want to help. They made it clear they want to give us the assistance that we need. Abbott is expected to send more buses from Texas to New York City. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Over 60,000 unvaccinated National Guard and Reserve soldiers are set to lose their jobs in the military. On Saturday, former President Donald Trump shared what he'd do about it if he took office again. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. 
Former President Donald Trump met with reporters backstage before his speech at CPAC in Dallas, Texas on Saturday. A reporter asked Trump if he were elected president, what would he do about unvaccinated U.S. service members who have lost their careers, benefits, and livelihood? Let him back. I think it's a disgrace what happened to them. It's ridiculous. So I would give them their back pay and I would let them back and they understand that and they know it. And if Trump were to follow through with his plan, troops who are discharged from the military for not getting the COVID-19 vaccine could receive over two years worth of salary. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army is struggling to meet its recruitment goals. But in July, it announced plans to cut more than 60,000 National Guard and Reserve soldiers for refusing COVID-19 vaccines. A U.S. military officer who chose not to get vaccinated for religious reasons was relieved of his command. He spoke to the Epic Times under anonymity. My integrity and religious beliefs are too important to me to compromise, even if that means I risk losing my career. NTD reached out to the Department of Defense for comment, but didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. Now to Michigan and the plot to kidnap the governor that allegedly happened in 2020. Now two men are facing a second trial for their suspected involvement. The trial comes months after a jury couldn't reach a verdict on the pair. The other suspects were acquitted. The two men who go on trial this week are accused of crafting a plan to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Jurors will hear how undercover FBI agents and informants infiltrated the Michigan group. And defense attorneys are again expected to argue that the two were shielded by the First Amendment when they expressed negative opinions about government and that they were entrapped every step of the way. Jury selection starts Tuesday in federal court in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And looking to the Middle East now, Israel and designated terrorist group Islamic Jihad agreed to a ceasefire starting late Sunday night, local time. Over 40 people were killed in the three-day conflict. Here are the details. Israel and the Islamic Jihad terrorist group in Gaza announced separately that they agreed to a ceasefire on Sunday. Egypt helped mediate the ceasefire and pledged to assist the jihad movement in gaining the release of two of their officials captured by Israel. We in the Islamic Jihad movement in Palestine announce entry into the ceasefire agreement as of 11.30 p.m. on Sunday, August 7, 2022, and we confirm that we will abide by the ceasefire as long as the enemy adheres to it. The Israeli Prime Minister commented on the three-day military conflict in a televised speech on Monday. Israeli Defense Forces launched airstrikes against jihad targets in Gaza beginning Friday, killing a senior commander of the terrorist group. The jihad movement retaliated by firing hundreds of rockets at Israel. All goals were achieved. The entire senior military command of the Islamic Jihad in Gaza was successfully targeted within three days. The strength and sophistication of the Israeli Defense Forces dealt the enemy a heavy blow. Israel says an estimated 47 Palestinians were killed over the past three days, including 14 killed by rockets fired by Islamic Jihad that landed in Gaza. No Israelis were killed or seriously wounded. And according to Palestinian authorities, 44 Palestinians were killed, including 12 Islamic Jihad terrorists. This was the biggest military conflict Israel has faced since the 11-day war with Hamas in May of last year. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. An update now on the thousands of Afghan refugees who were evacuated to America after the U.S. withdrawal. A whistleblower claims that hundreds of them are on an official watch list, which includes known or suspected terrorists. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. A whistleblower has now... Senator Josh Hawley says a Department of Defense whistleblower has claimed that 324 of the Afghan evacuees are on the biometric-enabled watch list, which includes known and suspected terrorists. The whistleblower also alleges that the White House and DOD officials instructed personnel to not conduct full fingerprint checks on the evacuees to speed up the process. Holly questioned FBI Director Christopher Wray on this very issue. Here's Ray's response. 
This was a massive number of people to be vetting in an extraordinarily short period of time, and that, um, that, uh, in my view, uh, inevitably raises concerns. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely yeah. right about that. Inevitably you, raises Senator. concerns. I think is the is the nicest thing that could be said about it. In fact, thank you. Sir. We know that the the basic procedures were not followed. We know that the screening process was not followed, and now we know that potentially hundreds of people connected to terrorism are loose in this country as a result. I spoke with retired intelligence officer and the author of Operation Dark Heart, Tony Schaefer, about the threat Americans face. One of the things we've learned for a long time dealing with these this sort of threat is people can go underground and be underground a long time. He also explained that all of the individuals could have been vetted properly if the U.S. kept Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. We never fully left uh, South Korea. South Korea became a democracy because of our investment in that nation. We never left Germany. We still have bases in Germany. Uh, I think the same was planned for Bagram. We should have always maintained some level of military presence to both conduct special operations and intelligence gathering. And in this case, it could have served to be a very effective screening location for refugees who wanted to come to the United States as part of our withdrawal. We reached out to the Department of Defense for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now we turn to Twitter, which has permanently suspended author and political commentator James Lindsay. It comes after a series of account bans on Lindsay and others targeting posts that use the word groomer or grooming to describe people who instruct children on mature sexual LGBT issues. Earlier today, Lindsay told us how he was banned after using an alternate term, child sexualization specialist, in an exchange with a transgender attorney. James Lindsay, great to have you back again. Hey, it's good to be here. Now, you've just been banned from Twitter. Could you tell us about the tweet that got you banned? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's a little funny. They had cracked down, to, it has to give a little context or it doesn't make any sense. They had cracked down on using the word groomer and, and specifically calling anybody who is in the LGBT whatever plus letters spectrum a groomer because they've said that it's hate speech and it taps into a slur or something of this nature that um, obviously most gays and lesbians are fighting against being associated with that lie. But uh, they banned that word, and so I thought I was being clever by being a little more specific and careful. And so the actual tweet that got me permanently suspended from Twitter was, OK, child sexualization specialist. Um, so I went with the kind of humorous route of being very technical with my language. This person, I feel, is a specialist in how you sexualize children. So child sexualization specialist was the term that I used. The same dismissive attitude with the okay kind of meme. And it was in reply to the person accusing me of being specifically bigoted against black women, which of course is slanderous and false, um, because I made a joke about Kamala Harris, uh, <laughs> who um, is definitely a woman and arguably black. Okay, and so Twitter says that this tweet violates its terms on hateful conduct, but it also says that its terms are not in any way in odds with free speech. What's your take on that? I mean, that's obviously baloney. Um, there, free speech requires hateful conduct. It requires the ability to say things that offend people because otherwise it wouldn't be free. This isn't a complicated matter. Uh, there is no free speech provision that says that nobody's going to ever say things to you that hurt your feelings. And so, or to say things somewhere else that you might hear that hurt your feelings. So, I mean, this is an obvious contradiction. It's an obvious distortion of uh, policy. They are taking deliberate attempts, and it's also uh, unfairly or un uh, unevenly, I should say, uh, applied. As For example, I was accused of baselessly of being racist and sexist specifically against black women in the exchange uh, that was occurring, and there's no punishment for that baseless accusation whatsoever. There's no uh, rule prohibiting the free use of literal land, uh, libel. So what you have is Twitter choosing sides, playing favorites, and deciding who gets to speak and in what terms and when they don't, which is not only not free speech, it is repressive speech. It is the kind of thing that a totalitarian power enforces on people. And what are the implications of bans like this on the broader discourse around this topic? 
Well, I would have said a year ago that it messes with the discourse, it changes the discourse, uh, it chills the discourse. And in fact, I don't think that's the case. I think now it's like pouring lava on the discourse. People know it's being banned and they know it's being banned for a reason and they know they're being silenced and unable to talk about it. So it's it's like they've taken the, the valve on a pressure cooker and sealed it. And so what it's doing in terms of the discourse is making it much angrier. It is making the problem much more visible. It's making people much more furious about it. They now believe, I've had hundreds of people reach out to me and say things, and I saw my name trended on Twitter. I watched it for a little while. I thought, Lindsay, or I thought you were probably going too far with this issue, and now that they kicked you off Twitter for it, I'm almost positive you're correct. And so what it's doing is poisoning discourse in general, but it's not doing what they want it to do. It's not achieving a silencing of discussion around the issue. It's driving it underground and infusing it with tremendous uh, anger and intention. So that's an issue. That's a big problem, as a matter of fact. Uh, we want to be able to talk about issues so that they don't escalate. So that's a concern. Secondly, it's destroying the credibility of Twitter in the same way they thought they could redefine certain other terms. We won't name them because they're magic words you can't say. And then they, in the process, damage the credibility of the FDA and the CDC, for examples, or the Department of Justice by doing, you know, defining domestic terrorist in a new way. All this does, once people have caught on to the fact that they think they can redefine language and get away with whatever they're going to get away with, all this misbehavior is discredit the institution that's doing it, that's participating in it, that's supporting it. And so Twitter is maybe I'm just a small little piece in this grander thing, but it's it's discrediting itself. My ultimate guess is that unless there's a course correction, unless there's some kind of uh, maybe legislation or something that ensures that there is actually free speech on these big social media platforms, that they will all be driven further and further into the kind of fate that awaits new startups like like uh, Getter or Truth Social, which is that they're intrinsically partisan. Twitter will become intrinsically more and more left-wing until normal people no longer want to use it. Their stockholders should be, shareholders should be very mad that they're destroying the company in this way. Um, Elon Musk should be paying attention to that because it will destroy the company he's buying now um, as it becomes increasingly partisan because when it becomes increasingly partisan, it becomes decreasingly fun. Uh, it's not fun to participate on this. Twitter had the advantage of growing up in a pre-partisan social media world, and it's discrediting itself and making it less usable, less enjoyable, and it'll eventually drive out normal people and good. And now that you've been banned, how do you plan to continue advocating for children and parental rights? Well, I don't plan to stop, that's for certain. The first thing I'm going to be doing uh, a lot more of is, well, I don't know if I can do more. I do an absurd amount of these shows. I put out an absurd number of podcasts. I've now published two or recorded. Some of them are in the in the, the, the queue, but I have recorded 210 podcasts in a year and a half. That's not going to slow down. Uh, I will continue to appear in person. I will poke around on other social media. I'll probably start using YouTube a little bit more aggressively than I have been. Um, so I will still be getting my message out. I will still be working with the many contacts that I have in state and federal uh, legislative positions and other positions to power to make sure that things are happening. I'm talking with a number of states about legislation against these issues right now. I've talked with federal uh, legislators or congressmen against, about dealing with these issues a um, number of times now. I'm working with a couple of states outside of just their legislatures to, to deal with this. So I'm going to continue that level of advocacy and, and work as well. And that podcast is New Discourses, in, in case our viewers uh, wanted to look it up. Thank you so much for your time, James Lindsay. It's great to well, see you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And more news on Twitter. Former Twitter chief Jack Dorsey is speaking out against Beijing's tough COVID-19 restrictions, calling for an end to the Chinese Communist Party. His comment was made amid the recent lockdowns of two more major port cities in China. Here's more. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted Saturday in the CCP. He was commenting on a report on the toll of the Chinese Communist Party's zero COVID policy. The three-word post has been shared some 12,000 times and received about 60,000 likes. As Shanghai emerges from a two-month lockdown, another eastern Chinese city, Yiwu, is forced into indefinite semi-lockdown. Local authorities said it's to counter a new outbreak in the region. Measures include tests for all 1.8 million residents and suspension of public transport and non-essential services. 
Yiwu City is a major port in global trade of small commodities. It's known as the world's largest wholesale hub, with business ties to more than 2 million small and medium enterprises in China. The city's closure is sparking concerns about disruptions to global trade and supply chains. Meanwhile, Sanya, another port city of the South China Sea, is also under strict lockdown. Once dubbed China's Hawaii, Sanya has now closed all inbound and outbound flights, leaving 80,000 tourists stranded in the city. And most of the establishments and venues and things were all closed already. They were open that day, earlier in the day, um, but everything uh, definitely closed earlier at least. Um, so we, we didn't really get to see anything. Um, other than going from one hotel to another hotel last minute uh, to try and like, beat the rush. Beijing's zero-tolerance approach to the virus is pushing more Chinese people to sever ties with the Chinese Communist regime. According to the New York-based Global Dong Center, as of August, more than 400 million people in mainland China and overseas have renounced their membership in the party and its affiliated organizations. And in other China-related news, a new bill introduced in the Senate aims to stop the Chinese Communist Party from buying U.S. farmland. Two Senate Republicans introduced the proposal, arguing that the communist regime's accusations on American soil pose a threat to national security. They say Chinese investments in American farmland put U.S. food security at risk and provide opportunities for Chinese espionage against American military bases and critical infrastructure. Some 14 states have restrictions against foreign ownership of land, but there are no similar federal restraints. And in Albuquerque, New Mexico, police are investigating a murder that happened on Friday night to see if it's connected to other recent killings. The men were all Muslim. Two of them attended the same mosque. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the ongoing situation. Authorities are on the lookout for a gray Volkswagen Jetta or Passat with tinted windows. They believe it may be connected to the murder of four Muslim men in Albuquerque. We have a very, very strong lead. We have a vehicle of interest and we want everyone to take note of this vehicle in, who lives in central New Mexico and we have got to find this vehicle. A man was found dead in a parking lot from a gunshot wound on Friday. His name has not yet been released. Two Muslim men who both attended the same mosque were gunned down in the past two weeks. Authorities determined Thursday there is a connection between the two killings. Police say in the previous three murders, the men were ambushed and shot without warning. We will bring this person or these persons to justice. We will provide justice to the families who have lost everything. It's now suspected the recent murders are connected to the killing of an Afghan immigrant in November last year. The local Crime Stoppers Board is offering a $20,000 reward for information that helps lead to an arrest. Several agencies are probing the murders, including the New Mexico State Police, the FBI, and the U.S. Marshals Service. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, actress Anne Heche allegedly crashed a car into a Los Angeles resident's house, resulting in the house burning to the ground. We'll have the details on injuries and what's being done for the homeowner. And the PGA Tour is filing a motion to keep three live golfers out of the playoffs. NTD's Dave Martin will have the details soon here on NTD News. Welcome back. Actress Anne Heche is in stable condition after an alleged DUI car crash into a Los Angeles residence. As a result of the crash, the owner of the house lost her home. Her friends have set up a GoFundMe page for her. NTD's Eileen Egg reports. Police are investigating actress Anne Heche for a DUI hit and run after crashing her vehicle into a Mar Vista home on Friday. According to media reports, Heche was hospitalized with burn injuries after her car caught fire following the accident. Further details on her condition and prognosis were not available. 
According to the Los Angeles Fire Department, it took 59 firefighters 65 minutes to fully extinguish the flames on the 738-square-foot two-story home. The owner of the house is Lynn Mitchell. Her friends and neighbors have started a GoFundMe page to help her. According to the page, she lives with her two dogs and narrowly escaped physical harm. Her home was completely burned, and she lost her entire lifetime of possessions, mementos, and all equipment for her business. She was only able to retrieve a few damaged, sentimental belongings from the wreckage with firefighters' help. Surveillance footage caught a blue BMW Mini Countryman speeding past houses before the crash. And staying in the state, Tesla calls its autonomous driving features full self-driving and autopilot. But California's DMV says this is misleading. It says it could potentially take away Tesla's license to operate as a car maker in the state. California is a big market for Tesla. So let's hear from NTD's Colin Fredrickson, who has the story. California's Department of Motor Vehicles is accusing Tesla of deceptive advertising in regards to its self-driving features. The department says Tesla advertises them as autopilot and full self-driving capability, but the cars could not at the time of those advertisements and cannot now operate as autonomous vehicles. It's like a co-pilot, right? It doesn't just completely do everything. We're not in the, the, the era yet where the car is just going to fly us to wherever. Richard O'Dell is the COO of Driven, a company that provides in-person Tesla courses. O'Dell says the technology is there, it just isn't 100% there. We, as a um, passenger or a driver of the vehicle, do have to remain alert and, you know, assist the technologies that's there. Every update that our car gets, the full self-driving and the features are much better. There are five levels of autonomous driving, driver assistance, partial automation, conditional automation, high automation, and full automation. Tesla is at level two. All level two systems require drivers to pay attention, to have their hands um, on the wheel for a certain amount of time, and also to be ready to intervene at any time because the system may turn the vehicle back to you if it encounters a situation it doesn't believe it can handle. Michael Strong is managing editor at the Detroit Bureau. Strong says Tesla has always said the vehicles aren't completely independent, despite advertising them as full self-driving. I have to confess that, you know, when I first started hearing about it, I thought, oh, these things are going to drive themselves. And we're a long way from vehicles being able to do that. Tesla could temporarily lose its California license as a vehicle manufacturer and auto dealer because of this. Last year, California made up around 13% of all Tesla sales. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And on a lighter note, depending on where you live in the U.S., some foods may be prepared differently. New York-style pizza and bagels are famous around the world. And did you know that Chicago also boasts a few iconic foods of its own? The Elmhurst History Museum in a Chicago suburb is highlighting the city's iconic foods in its Eat Your Heart Out exhibit. Curator Dan Bartlett says Chicago's twist on the recipes made the foods unique. A Chicago-style hot dog is a sausage in a bun. It was originally a working-class family food of German and Austrian immigrants in the late 19th century. Bright green pickle relish and onions and tomatoes, um, sport peppers or little hot peppers, um, yellow mustard, none of this fancy Dijon stuff, never ever ketchup. Bartlett just described the condiments that go on a Chicago-style hot dog, but is ketchup never allowed? The culinary experts um, say that the ketchup has too much sweetness and it contradicts some of the other flavors. But if you start to take things off the traditional Chicago hot dog, I think ketchup's probably okay. There are several versions of stories of how hot dogs got the name. Here's one version. You can't t easily tell what's in a sausage, right, because it's all ground up. And so um, in denigrating these German immigrants, there was jokes made that perhaps they were using dog in the sausage. Um, and then, of course, college kids kind of picked up on that, and, and that's how we, we got the hot dog. Italians may have invented the pizza, but it was Chicago's Pizzeria Uno that invented the first deep-dish pizza in 1943. Bartlett says regular pizza and deep-dish pizza have distinct places in our daily lives. When you don't want to cook or are in a rush, you get a pizza. Deep dish, on the other hand, is something you plan for. 
like going to church or going to a concert or going, because it takes so much more um, effort and time to put it together. Chicago's Joe Sapp and his wife Catherine invented the five-flavor rainbow cone ice cream in 1926. Their signature cone featured five flavors, chocolate, strawberry, Palmer House, pistachio, and orange. This very iconic combination of flavors all stacked up here, um, one atop the other. They're not scooped, they're sliced. They're like little slabs of ice cream that go together. Local visitors Sarah Jones and her daughter Shay have different favorites. Hot dogs are my favorite food. We'll say that I do enjoy the deep dish pizza. We don't get it that often. So when we do have it, it's kind of for like a special occasion. These iconic foods originated from the cultures of early Chicago immigrants. And now they've become symbols of America's melting pot. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The PGA Tour has asked a federal judge to deny an appeal filed by three of its suspended golfers. The golfers competed in the rival Live Golf League but are looking to play in this week's FedEx Cup playoffs. Live golfers Taylor Gooch, Matt Jones and Hudson Swafford filed a temporary restraining order last week which was separate from the players who filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. The hearing will be held Tuesday, just two days before the first of three FedEx Cup playoff events. Each of the three golfers qualified by ranking in the top 125 of the FedEx Cup standings. But back in June, Commissioner Jay Monahan announced that any golfer who competed in unauthorized events would not be eligible for the playoffs. The tour says the players knew they'd be ineligible when they, quote, accepted millions from Live to breach their agreements with the tour. This week's FedEx Cup playoff event will be held in Memphis with the top 70 players advancing to the next stage. In basketball news, today marks the 30th anniversary of the Dream Team winning Olympic gold in Barcelona. The historic team was the country's first squad made up of professional basketball players plus one college player in the Olympics. Of the 12 players selected, 11 are in the Hall of Fame, while superstars Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and Magic Johnson in particular are universally regarded as among the best, if not the greatest ever, at their respective positions. The loaded roster also featured David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Clyde Drexler, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, Chris Mullen, and college star Christian Leitner. The team went 8-0 and dominated the competition, starting with a 68-point blowout win over Angola. They won their games by an average of 44 points and topped it off by beating Croatia by 32 in the championship game, their closest of the tournament. They were so dominant that head coach Chuck Daly didn't have to call a single timeout through the entire Olympics. Meanwhile, the team scored better than 100 points in every game. The star-studded team is largely credited for growing the sport worldwide. Fans mobbed them everywhere they went. Coach Daly said, quote, it was like traveling with 12 rock stars. Even opposing players on the court were sometimes heard shouting for others to take their photos during play while guarding their favorite players. In the seven Olympics since the Dream Team's historic run, the U.S. has won gold six times, with the lone exception being the bronze medal winning 2004 squad. In baseball news, Mets ace Jacob deGrom made history yesterday, striking out 12 Atlanta Braves to pass Hugh Darvish for the most strikeouts through 200 career appearances with 1,523. The two-time Cy Young winner was especially dominant, retiring the first 17 batters he faced while hitting 102 on the radar gun. Afterwards, Mets manager Buck Showalter said, quote, it was something to watch. Meanwhile, the 5-2 win gave New York a six-and-a-half game lead over the Braves in the NL East. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, concern over attacks at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. 
UN is calling for inspectors to be given access to the plant as Ukraine and Russia trade accusations over who is doing the shelling. And an idyllic vineyard in Napa Valley with its very own 13th century castle. We'll hear what it takes to grow the grapes that make for the world famous wine. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Welcome back. Moscow and Kyiv accuse each other of shelling the territory of the Zaporozhia nuclear power station. The Ukrainian government warns of the risk of a Chernobyl-style catastrophe, while the Kremlin urges Western powers to force Kyiv to stop attacking the plant. The UN is calling for nuclear inspectors to be given access to the facility. Here's NTD's Eddie Aiken with the story. International alarm grew on Monday as shelling attacks on Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear complex continued at the weekend. The United Nations chief, attending an event marking the 77th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing in Japan, condemned the shelling. Any attack to a nuclear plant is a suicidal thing, and I hope that uh, those attacks uh, will end. He calls for UN nuclear inspectors to be given access to the plant, which is occupied by Russian troops. Kiev warns of the risk of a Chernobyl-style catastrophe and appeals for the area to be made a demilitarized zone. The head of Ukraine's state nuclear power company calls for a team of peacekeepers to be deployed at the Zaporizhia site, which is still run by Ukrainian technicians. Meanwhile, Moscow and Kiev trade blame for the recent shelling that had damaged three radiation sensors and injured a worker at the plant. In there is no such nation in the world that could feel safe when a terrorist state fires at a nuclear plant. God forbid, something irreparable happens and no one will stop the wind that will spread the radioactive contamination. Russia's defense ministry spokesman says attacks by Ukrainian forces caused a power surge, causing an emergency shutdown. On the 7th August, the Zelensky regime committed a new act of nuclear terrorism on the site of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant energy infrastructure to create a humanitarian disaster in Hersa and the Zaporizhia regions. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov urges Western powers to force Kiev to stop attacking the plant. A Russian-installed official in the Zaporizhia region said on Monday that the facility was operating normally. The Ukrainian military intelligence chief says his organization had received credible information that the Russians had planted explosives at the power plant. The plant is located in the southern region seized by Russian invaders in March. Ukraine has said it's planning to conduct a major counteroffensive there, apparently focused on the city of Kherson, west of Zaporizhia, and that it has already retaken dozens of villages. Eddie Aiken, NTD News. And over in France, as a heat wave hits the nation, one way to deal with high temperatures is to find a cool spot under the shade of a tree. But this is easier said than done in Paris, where trees are lacking. Temperatures in the city can vary wildly, depending on the presence of green cover. NTD's France correspondent David Vives went in search of shade. There are those who enjoy to sit in the sun and those who prefer to rest in the shade of trees. A third heat wave is baking France. In Paris, the heat radiating off the asphalt outside the Garnier Opera House hit 56 degrees Celsius on urban planning expert Tanguy Le Dantec's thermometer. The temperature of the asphalt is between 56 and 58 degrees Celsius because it is a material that stores lots of heat. That's due to the sun, to the air temperature, which currently is 36 degrees Celsius, these materials can store much more, which leads their surface temperature to be over 20 degrees Celsius, more than the air temperature. So in some places here, the temperature that you feel is hotter than in the middle of the Sahara. Though you can admire beautiful statues here that won't do much to quell the heat, the Place de l'Opéra is one of numerous so-called urban heat islands in the French capital that are deprived of trees, which can cool down cities by providing shade. Paris ranks poorly among global cities for its green cover. According to data from the World Cities Culture Forum, 
only 10% of Paris is made up of green space such as parks and gardens, compared to London at 33% and Oslo at 68%. Tourists and residents flock to the few parks the city has, such as Bercy Park. Visitors and local animals enjoy the water features, as well as its tall trees. The temperature here stood around 26 degrees Celsius. A good place to go for a walk or take a nap. Trees, flowers, plants. It's true, we should plant more. When you're in places like here in Paris, it's very pleasant. You realize that we need more trees. In the square where I used to live, there were century-old trees, all of which were cut down to build a new concrete square. Trees are life. My dad used to tell me that every person in his life should plant a tree. It is the source of life. If you plant a tree, you give back to nature. Paris City Hall says it wants to create islands of freshness by planting more trees. But its decision to cut down decades-old trees to make room for new ones has provoked a series of protests. Tree campaigners say the filling of mature trees runs counter to the authorities' own ambitions as young saplings are more vulnerable to drought and less useful in fighting against heat radiation. These trees had a role to play in fighting heat and purifying air. They were in great shape because at 50 or 60 years old, a hackberry tree or a plane tree is almost never sick. It is important to understand that. They are fully equipped to defend themselves from diseases, fungi and insects. And so we saw these trees being felled behind fences. France's National Meteorological Service predicts the high temperatures to continue. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And back in Northern California, grapes are ripe and in season. NTD's Eileen Ang visited a unique vineyard that has a flair for tradition in the Napa Valley to learn how they make their wine. Castello di Amorosa in Napa Valley's Calistoga is welcoming another year of raisin. That's the viticulture word to describe the transition from berry growth to berry ripening. The acid will start lowering and the sugar content will be greater. And so then we look for an equilibrium between sugar, acid, and pH and um, and then we'll pick the grapes. Okay, so um, that's how you decide when to pick. You just pick a sample and just test well, it. Well, we also test them in the lab. According to Dario Satui, the owner of the castle and vineyard, they grow their grapes across Napa, Mendocino, and Sonoma counties. They primarily make Italian-style wines. The cooler areas of Mendocino, we grow Pinot Noir and many of our white wines. And then uh, Napa County, of course, Cabernet Sauvignon. We also grow some Chardonnay and um, Pinot Noir in Sonoma County. In total, they have about 120 acres of vineyard with different grapes ripening at different times. And all those acres of grapes have a very distinct way of cultivation, starting with pruning from January to March. The vine is diffusing the energy into many clusters so the quality won't be as good. You'll, you'll get a lot, but it won't be as good. So when we cut, it, you know, it hurts me to see all these great clusters go on the ground, but it's better for quality. Harvesting season begins in August and goes through October. We do everything by hand and we pick by hand and, um, and then we will crush, press the grapes, and then um, the white wines often don't go to barrels at all, except for the Chardonnay. Wines that are stored go in underground rooms beneath the castle. Chardonnay is fermented in French oak barrels. Satui says each barrel costs about $900 to $1,000. They're used only twice to make vintage wines, and then they sell them for planters. So it's a very expensive way to make wine. We could buy American oak barrels for half to 60% of the cost. But American oak barrels are too aggressive, too tannic, where the uh, French oak barrels have more spice and uh, give them greater elegance to the wine. So we prefer to use those. Red wines are aged anywhere from six months to two years. They try to bottle age them for at least a year. 
for reserve wines, they age for at least three years before they start selling them. Dario created this winery. It's a family-owned winery. He's the owner. He wanted to create wines that people could take home and enjoy with their friends and family. And he wanted to make food-friendly, uh, approachable wines. And so that's what we do here, is we make those kinds of wines, those Italian-style wines. And we want you to enjoy it around the table with your family and your friends. About 90 of the 107 castle rooms are dedicated to winemaking. The castle offers tours for wine tasting. With their years of experience, they know the land like the back of their hand. The castle vineyard also sells grape juice. Except for a little bit of sulfur, there are no other additives. Wine tasting tours are available with online reservations. Eileen Ang, NTD News, Calistoga, California. And lastly, a British fashion designer has branched out by selling ice cream. But what's so special about this ice cream? It's the flavors. They range from ketchup or mayonnaise to baked beans or soy sauce. NTD's Joy Felix has the story. Basking in Britain's hottest ever summer, Londoners are queuing outside of a temporary ice cream shop in Knightsbridge. So this is the ice cream project created by Anya Highmarch. So this is all about elevating the everyday flavors. So we've taken British store cupboard classics and turn them into ice cream. So we have flavors like Heinz baked beans, mayo, ketchup. We also have Quaker rolled oats, PG tips, all of the fun things that you usually get in your store cupboard. <laughs> According to the designer's website, all the ice creams and sorbets in the store are handmade in small batches in Devon. They are sold in scoops to consume on the spot or in a 500 ml tub to take away. So we actually sold out of six weeks worth of ice cream in four days. So we've been really, really popular, really positive reaction from the public. Lots of people coming in, returning as well every single day to try two flavors a day, let's say. So we've got our own regulars, which is really lovely. This girl came to the shop with her mother and sister for the second time of the day, and they were excited to try the new flavors. Well, we tried most of them. I think I think the weirdest flavour is probably ketchup and baked beans because it's just like the most unusual thing that you would have. This girl said she saw a video on TikTok about the ice cream shop and came on a Saturday but found the store was too packed, so she decided to come back on a quieter day. I tried mayonnaise and ketchup so far. The mayonnaise wasn't good. The ketchup's a bit better, but they're not as sweet as I would like because I've got quite a sweet tooth. So which flavours is the most popular and which is the least popular? And then the two most popular have been the Frosties and the Cocoa Pops, especially with the children, and then followed by our soya sauce for the adults, which is great. And then, as expected, the salad cream. There are a few people who love it. However, it is the most out there flavour that we do, for sure. Anya Heinmarch website says that Kikaman soy sauce ice cream is a toasted sesame ice cream laced with umami, rich, naturally brewed soy sauce. The shop also sells a collection of sequined Anya Heinmarch totes, which will set you back nearly £900. The temporary ice cream shop is open until the 28th of August. Joy Felix, NTD News. Well, grab a bite if you're nearby. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.